I'm Lauren Barry, and this is Odyssey's On Deadline podcast, where you get a closer look at a top news story out of our radio newsrooms across the country. On Deadline today is either A, an ongoing teacher shortage, B, an issue with safety in schools, C, tips for combating hazing, or D, all of the above. If you guessed D, you would be making your educators proud, though it might be hard to find them with that ongoing teacher shortage. According to teachershortage.com, Florida has more than 5,000 teaching positions that are unfilled. Georgia has more than 3,000 positions, and North Carolina has more than 3,500. In total, there are more than 55,000 teaching vacancies across the country, leaving school districts scrambling as classes in most states have already started. But what caused the ongoing crisis? A McKinsey survey of more than 1,800 teachers conducted last year found that the main reason educators have left the profession, or considered leaving, is pay. This comes after a study from the National Center for Education Statistics released last year found that the average salary for a teacher fell almost 8% since 2010 when adjusted for inflation. Add in burnout and what many call an unmanageable workload, and you have a recipe for trouble. Tan Nguyen is an education professor at Kansas State University who researches school improvement, teacher policy, and the teacher labor market. He joined Odyssey to discuss how new data shows teacher vacancies have grown by 35%. So a 35% growth in teacher vacancies, that's almost scary. How many educators are we talking about? So uh, from previous years, there were about at least 36,000 vacant positions, but that's grown to at least 55,000 vacant positions. And in the same 37 states in prior year, that's around a 12,000 vacant position increase. That is just a lot of empty classrooms. I mean, the classrooms are not empty. There has to be some sort of qualified educator in there to handle things and hopefully impart knowledge. What are schools doing if they don't have a full-time teacher ready to go? So sometimes they would cancel the uh, available for students. At other times, they would have teachers in there who may not have standard certification. So they may have emergency certifications, or they may be teaching out of subject expertise. For instance, an English teacher teaching mathematics. So, you know, schools are doing what they can to teach students, but they don't always have the most qualified teachers in those classrooms. But what does your research show is the effect on, on students when they don't have a qualified teacher? So there's a lot of research showing that when we don't have qualified teachers, students learn less. And when teachers who are unqualified or less qualified who are in the classroom, they tend to leave at higher rates. And when teachers leave, they're either during the middle of the school year or at the end of the school year, student learning suffers. So all the evidence says that, hey, we really want certified and qualified teachers to be in the classroom because they are more likely to remain in the classroom and they do, on average, a better job of teaching students. What do we need to get more qualified teachers or to further qualify the teachers that are there? And then big picture, how do we get more teachers to fill those over 50,000 vacancies? So to that first point, I think that we have to consider different sets of, you know, policies. Maybe, uh, you know, we have um, better phone loan forgiveness. We make um, teaching education completely free. Uh, We should increase teacher salary. But in the long run, what we're talking about is we need to change the narrative, what it means to be a teacher in this country, right? We shouldn't talk about whether or not there is a teacher shortage anymore. What we should be talking about is what can we do 
to provide more teachers in the classroom, to increase interest in the teaching professions, to pay them what they're worth, and to give them the respect and prestige that the profession definitely deserves. Another growing concern among both educators and families is safety in the classroom. Since the Columbine massacre in the late 1990s, school shootings have multiplied, rattling educators, students, and parents. Recent high-profile school shootings in Texas, Michigan, and Tennessee have only added to the worries. In Minnesota, safety is now on everyone's mind, with a recent law resulting in police agencies pulling school resource officers out of school buildings. Hennepin County Sheriff Dewana Witt joined Odyssey in Minnesota to discuss why police are leaving schools. Well, first off, I am a big supporter of school resource officers. Um, me being an, a school resource officer for six years, I know the importance of building those relationships, being proactive. That is something that we do need. That's something that um, works well in our schools. However, with the recent um, change in law in regard to use of force, um, you know, I see it necessary that to remove our deputies from that situation because it, the law does not protect them in those settings. No one wants to see um, any students get hurt, but to say that to limit what our ability is to intervene to actually help people um, and stop people from hurting one another, we're not allowed to do our job. So it does not work for what the statute also says we we are to do, which is to serve and protect. We can't protect it. The, the law conflicts with each with, mm-hmm. with itself. So, again, to protect um, my deputies as well as um, others, mm-hmm. I thought it necessary to, to remove our school resource officer. Um, and, again, that was a hard decision because I think that is one of the most important roles in law enforcement and one of the best platforms in which we could um, build those relationships with our younger generation. You know, there's a lot of things, you know, we talk about things that go bad, but we'll hear about are how the students and the, some of the uh, school administrators feel about having a school resource officer in that setting. You know, in today's uh, world where we're seeing, you know, violence in school to include gun violence. Yep. You know, knowing your students and knowing, knowing the um, layout of the schools is, a, is one of the best preventative factors. And, you know, it's just unfortunate that, that um, we didn't catch this sooner. But I look forward to uh, um, having those conversations. I don't think I will be sure to say that, obviously, we as the subject matter experts were not included in those conversations. If we were, we would have said why that is not a good idea. What's the solution here? Because um, I have a couple of my own humans that are in high school. Um, I go back and forth with having a school resource officer. I understand the need to build the relationships. And we've been hearing stories that kids in school, some, of course, are awful. They're disrespectful to the teachers. They throw things. They get in fights. They don't listen. They tell, oh, you can't touch me because that's against the law. But yet there has to be some semblance of order in school and safety for our teachers and our other kids. So is there a solution that maybe doesn't involve a school resource officer? Do we have to change the law? I mean, what do you, what's, the, what's the, if you could ma- wave a magic wand, what would you do? If I could uh, wave a magic wand, I would still say school resource officers just thinking of, again, that's one of the very few platforms we have where we can build relationships. You're not always reacting to things that go on. You have that opportunity to be proactive. 
<laughs> so <laughs> my magic wand would still have school resource officers um, in play. But we, let's talk about our teachers, too, because we also know that they're limited to do things. Mm-hmm. So let's say that there are two students that are physically fighting, and it is um, a very brutal fight. Sure. What are you to do? What are you to do? I mean, if you think about if you're the parent of the aggressor or the parent of the victim, is your view going to change? You know, I don't think so. You know, we have to have the means to protect because, you know, things happen. We don't want it to happen, but the fact is, is that they do. And we need to, if my magic wand worked, it would be like, okay, kids, stop. And they would stop. But I don't think that's going to work. For college students, another safety concern is getting attention as students return to their campuses for the fall semester. The threat of hazing. Hazing, or the process of initiating someone into a group or community through humiliating, degrading, or physically strenuous tasks, has been around for decades. But in recent years, extreme hazing cases have made headlines, with young adults suffering injuries and even dying from rituals at colleges nationwide. Dr. Elizabeth Allen joined Odyssey in Chicago as one of several hazing experts to give their opinions on how to keep kids safe from hazing this school year. Dr. Allen, when it comes to uh, hazing, there is the uh, stereotypical hazing situations, fraternity and sorority initiation rituals, and in sports. Are, Are there other places in which hazing occurs outside of those settings? Absolutely. Yes. And in our research, starting with a national study that we did, collecting data from students enrolled in in more than 50 different colleges and universities, we found that hazing occurred in many different types of uh, clubs, organizations, and teams. Of course, as you mentioned, varsity athletics and fraternity and sorority life were prevalent, but we also saw it in intramural sports, club sports, performing arts organizations such as marching bands, a cappella groups. We even saw it in honor societies and academic clubs as well. It seems like the emotional pull of hazing is you want to be a part of this group. And it seems like the the choice is if you want to be a part of this group, you have to participate in this ritual. And that can override whatever misgivings you may have about participating. The definition of hazing that we use, that is a general, you know, sort of foundational definition, is that it's any activity expected of someone uh, participating in a group that humiliates, abuses, or potentially endangers them, regardless of their willingness to participate. And so that's that that third piece is really important because it recognizes the peer pressure and the power of the of the group to create a coercive environment. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, it's, there is a tendency to blame the victim, uh, with hazing and, uh, it's important to recognize that the circumstances in hazing are such that a true consent is, is really called into question many years before. Now, Dr. Allen, if you are a parent and let's say you have a child who has joined, uh, hypothetically the, the marching band at college and unbeknownst to you, the marching band has a hazing ritual, and it may seem harmless at first, but there are some psychological after effects. What are some signs uh, in your child that uh, maybe they're, you know, things are not necessarily right, and uh, they're, they're carrying some uh, psychological baggage, 
after that hazing ritual? I'll start off by saying we do, on the StopHazing.org website, provide uh, some resources around sort of red flags, things to look for that might be signs of hazing. They could be changes in behavior, sleep disturbances, uh, withdrawing from regular activities and interactions with the family, not associating with their usual group of friends. And I'll also just mention that our research shows that students are more likely to report or share about hazing experiences with their families than they are to report it to a campus official. And so it is vital for uh parents and families and caregivers to become educated on what to do should they learn about hazing or suspect hazing is happening and know where to report it and how to talk to their students about what's happening. With all the safety concerns, students of all ages now face new forms of adversity. Also in the mix, the COVID-19 pandemic threw a wrench into typical classroom learning, which has left students struggling to keep up with academic standards. The American Economic Review shared in a recent study that on average, students in grades three through eight saw a decline in math and English scores from 2019 to 2021. In May, research from Harvard and Stanford universities revealed a, quote, urgent need for school leaders to expand recovery efforts now in response to learning losses related to the pandemic. Thomas Kane, director of Harvard Center for Education Policy Research, said that embracing extracurricular learning opportunities might be the way out of America's post-COVID academic slump. These opportunities could include after-school activities, summer school programming, and even an optional 13th year of class. One thing Kane thinks won't work, going back to normal. This show is produced by Joe Heady, Christy Strauser, Myron Kaplan, and Bill Smee. I'm Lauren Barry, and I want to say thanks for listening to the On Deadline podcast, Odyssey's deeper look at a top news story just for you. Subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcasts to stay informed.